Well, hello, everyone. It's nice to see all of you here at the UA Campus Bookstore. I'm Rachel, the events coordinator, coordinator and um, I'd just like to let you know that you're always welcome to come to any UA Campus Bookstore event. They're always free, and you're always welcome to come. Uh, before we get going, just a word about parking. For those of you who parked, we have free parking for all bookstore events in the parking lot in front of the bookstore, in the parking lot behind Rasmussen Hall and next to the Wells Fargo Sports Center. If you happen to get a ticket, don't worry, just call me or come see me. I'm Rachel here at the bookstore and I could take care of it. Sometimes a mistake happens, so don't worry about parking. Um, at this event, we are welcoming astronaut Bill Ophelot, and he was going to talk also about Adventure Right. Um, in 1998, Bill Offline was selected to join NASA's astronaut corps. He served as pilot for the STS-116 mission aboard Space Shuttle Discovery from December 9th to 22nd, 2006. The mission for the seven-member crew involved the further construction of the International Space Station, four spacewalks, the delivery of a new crew member, and two tons of equipment and supplies. After retiring in 2008, Bill returned to Alaska and started Adventure Right with his wife, Colleen Shipman. Concerning Adventure Right, Bill believes it is important that young people dream. This is what makes an explorer and an, and an adventurer. It is also important to clearly convey thoughts and experiences. The Kids Writing Contest helps motivate kids to write and to hone their writing skills. It provides an opportunity to dream and share that dream with others. So um, please join me in welcoming astronaut Bill Line, and we'll have time for a Q&A after his presentation. Thank you so much for coming. Can you hear me okay in the back without that? Is that okay? I think we need it. Okay. okay. Well, I always listen to your teacher. She's going to tell me I need this. Um, thanks, Rachel. Uh, as Rachel mentioned, my name's Bill Ophline. Um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about myself, my background growing up, um, tell you a little bit about my time in the Navy and NASA share some stories with you, and then talk about what I'm doing now with uh, my partner and, and how writing's important to us, specifically. So I came up to Alaska in uh, 1975. I was 10 years old at the time, so I'm pushing 50, if you do the math uh, right now. Uh, I graduated from West Anchorage High School. Uh, I actually went one year here at UAA back in 83, 84. I was an engineering student. Um, at the time, I was electrical engineering, and they didn't have it here. So I transferred up to Fairbanks and went one year up there at uh, UAF, where they had electrical engineering. But uh, being an, a guy from Anchorage at Fairbanks, where kind of, Fairbanks just kind of was a little too cold for me. So I ended up going out of state, uh, finishing at Oregon State University, where I got a Bachelor of Science in electrical, electrical Engineering. At the time when I went down there, I was going to come back to Alaska after I finished my schooling down there and uh, be an engineer of some sort up here. But an opportunity presented itself. Um, I got a, a note from the, from the Navy, actually, at the time. And they were recruiting. They wanted something called a nuclear engineer, which means somebody that goes in and you go, join the Navy and you work on their ships that are nuclear powered or their subs are nuclear powered. And they're offering um, pretty good signing bonus and a little bit extra money. And being a college student, um, that sounded pretty good. So I went and talked to the gentleman about it, the recruiter. Well, it turns out um, he was an aviator, actually. He was just recruiting for this program, but he was a pilot. And I'd been flying up here. I actually uh, got my pilot's license up here at Merrill Field at the time, a place called Wilbur's when it was in existence. So I, I flew for fun. Never thought I could make a career out of it because it was just pretty expensive. Um, anyhow, I started talking to this Navy recruiter about um, those gold wings on his chest and what it was like flying for the Navy. And our conversation gradually shifted from engineering to flying. And at the end of our conversation, he said, well, it's, it's apparent you're more interested in flying for the Navy than you are for being an engineer. So um, he turned me on to the aviation recruiter. And uh, from there, I graduated, went to uh, officer school, got a commission in the Navy, and then went to flight training. And I thought it was great. I ended up flying F-18s for the Navy. I uh, did deployment aboard the USS Nimitz over to the Persian Gulf back in the early 90s. And then um, thought, well, I still enjoyed engineering and math and science. And how can I marry that up with this love of flying that I had that I started here in Alaska? Well, what I decided to do was do something called, be, uh, called test pilot school, which is where you take engineering background 
and you take your flying background and you mesh those together and you go and test airplanes. So I applied for, was accepted to a test pilot school in Maryland, went through that for a year, graduated and I became a test pilot. It's at that point in time I started understanding that, you know, although I always enjoyed space and everything, I thought being an astronaut was something other people did, but I started meeting some people from this test pilot school that were trying to become astronauts. I said, well, that would be pretty cool. It really never crossed my mind until that point. Now we're talking mid-90s, I'm about 30 years old. And I grew up just liking to fly airplanes, but I decided to give it a shot. I put an application in for NASA, went down, got an interview, and as it turned out, they accepted me and they had me down uh, in 1998 to start training down there. Training took about two years. Then I became eligible for a flight assignment. I was assigned to a flight, STS-116, and, well, boy, that was 19, or no, that was 2001, 2002. Um, was just getting ready to go up into space, and then the Columbia accident happened. We were three months out from that. So we spent some time regrouping, rebuilding from that, and then uh, got the shuttles flying again, and ended up going up as a pilot on STS-116, which, is, as Rachel mentioned, was a, uh, an assembly mission. We were helping to still build the space station rotating out the crew and uh, doing some other things up there. So it was a lot of fun, but I find myself that there in a kind of an indirect uh, manner. I retired from the Navy in 2008, and I always wanted to come back to Alaska after being out. At that point, for almost 25 years, I've been outside, um, coming back in the summer for the fishing and everything, but it just wasn't the same living in Houston and Maryland and California. This was home, and I was fortunate enough to come back in uh, 08 and start another endeavor. And there's a couple things that uh, we do up here that I do, but one of them is called this company that we formed called Adventure Right. And what that is, is it basically took all my background with my partner, um, who is now my wife, but still my partner in this company. We loved writing, we loved reading, we loved storytelling, we loved hearing stories. We thought, how could we use our experiences to start a company? And that's what we did. So initially, we we're going to start an online magazine with this company called Adventure Right and start publishing small stories in that. Well, just like my Navy and, and NASA career kind of meandered and I found myself doing something I didn't think I was going to do 20 years ago, this kind of did this the same thing. And that online magazine, although it never materialized, it did create some contacts for us. And now we're kind of doing three big things with this company called Adventure Right. One of them is we uh, sponsor a nationwide um, writing contest for anybody that's under 18 years of old, or under 19 years, so 18 years and younger. And we have five different categories for that. And I'll just leave some flyers here with Rachel, but we also have a website. And we do it, and it's an annual contest. Over the years, we've had participation from all 50 states. It's one of the only free writing contests out there. And we do it for the sole purpose to inspire people to write. We don't, we don't charge any money, we don't take any money. Um, we try to go out to schools and make people aware that this contest is out. We offer a $50 cash prize for each of the um, contestants and we give them a nice little packet with uh, certificates and, and signed photographs and so forth. And we publish our story on our website. And again, it's just to get people out there imagining, creating, and writing. Um, another thing that we did, and we got, again, contacted via our website and we became very good friends with these other people but we're also uh, teamed up with this uh, organization called the forget-me-not mission and what that is it's just a campaign to um, make people aware of the dangers of drunken and now distracted meaning driving while texting and unfortunately the lady that started this I went to school with her daughter back in West she was gonna graduate in 1984 but in her senior year she got killed by a drunk driver her name was Shelley Reed. Her mom, who's now uh, remarried and her name's Nancy Bidwell, started this group called uh, Forget Me Not. She went out to all these different victims, including myself, I was a victim of a drunk driver, and asked us to write stories so she could include them in a uh, publication. So in here you see Shelley's story. You'll see uh, my story on, uh, I got uh, hit by a drunk driver when I was a, a high school senior, missed two weeks of school, was in a hospital. But it's in here, and then all these other victims, some are not around anymore, so their family members wrote the stories. And, uh, 
And then she took that one step further and she made a teen edition. So she had uh, just teenagers write stories about drunk, the hazards of drunk driving and uh, included in this. So we're very proud to be, uh, be teamed up with them to make people aware of the hazards and hopefully bring that drunken and distracted driving down. And another thing we do, um, my partner Colleen, she's very active writing. She gets up most days at four o'clock in the morning, writes for about three or four hours until her day really starts when our son gets up. And, uh, and she has a book agent and she's working with some uh, agents on fiction and non-fictional writing. And those are yet to be published, but um, those are in the works. So those are the kind of the big, things we f big, big three things we find ourselves doing right now that we didn't see ourselves doing uh, several years ago. Now I can share some of the stories with you, um, but what I really want to do is, I know you don't want to hear me talk this whole time about some of these things, but I'd like to learn a little bit about you and what you all are doing and answer any of the questions that you might have about some of my background, either writing, space, what got me to where I'm going, things that maybe can help you as you pursue your academic or writing careers in the future. So is there any questions? I'll just open up the floor right now. I do have some presentations and I can talk about any of the pictures that you see. Um, one of the stories that we're writing um, that we put online on our online magazine but um, never really actually published was called It's Hard uh, to Eat Gorp from Space and it's, it's about most Alaskans I think know what gorp is or like um, granola type of stuff. Stuff's actually kind of hard to eat in space because of the lack of gravity and I got an interesting story about that and some pictures. Um, or I can just answer some questions. Very informal. I have about, uh, to about two o'clock, I can stay. Um, so I'm yours. Yes, yes ma'am in the back. Well, well, believe it or not, one of my biggest fears, um, and probably to this day, is public speaking. Um, you know, I, I, I've never liked to get up in front of people. Um, and that goes back to, to high school. You know, I, I, I got into writing through reading, and I remember the course. It was called Literature of the North. It was a course I took back, back in uh, high school. And it was all about people up in Alaska and the stories they read. And of course, growing up here, I was very inspired by that. And that took me into some creative writing courses that I took when I was in the university. And then uh, from there, though, being an engineer and background, I had to start taking some technical report writing classes. And with those classes came um, presentations. So it's one thing to write the report, but then you got to get up and present it. And I just never really enjoyed that. I mean, but what the way I got over it is knowing that material. So when I would write about something, be it either from a creative standpoint or from a technical standpoint, I'd immerse myself in the material and I'd become the expert on it. And when you become the expert on something, then it's very easy to get up and talk to people about it. So that's kind of how I overcame that fear of not wanting to get up in front of people, was trying to become the expert on what I planned to get up and talk about. Other questions? Yes, Rachel. You know, um, uh, for you, the, those who didn't hear, when you're out in space, how do you find the words? That's, that still escapes me sometimes because it's really hard to describe um, the feelings. Uh, and the sights and the sounds and even the smells. I, you know, I remember um, one of my jobs was putting the, uh, the folks in the airlock so they could go out and do a spacewalk. And then, of course, they'd come back and I'd open the airlock and bring them back into the space station. We were doing our spacewalks out of the space station airlock. And I remember when I opened that hatch and you smelt this it smelled like space, you know, and what does space smell like? I don't, you know, it's kind of hard to describe, but it was almost like, have you ever been in a thunderstorm and kind of smell the air and like the ionized air? It, that's what it kind of smelled like when I opened that airlock. It kind of smelled like a thunderstorm in that ionized air. 
So there's all these things. You know, like I said, we trained for five years, but those things you can't train for. You know, the, the feeling of launch and, and the, the shaking and the acceleration. Yeah, we have the simulators, but nothing that does the real thing for justice. And then the first site, you know, we launched at night, and uh, so it was dark, couldn't see anything, but as soon as the engines um, stopped, you, could, you felt weightless and you felt like you were starting to float, but still nothing until a little sliver of earth started showing, and it was basically us flying into the sunrise. And it was about over England when I first saw the curvature of the earth, and that was just an incredible sight. It's like, wow, you know, to see that sliver of the atmosphere and then the sun start rising over the curvature of the earth, because until then, you know, we've been up almost 20 minutes, and I still hadn't seen that yet. So those are hard things for me. I'm sure there's much more talented writers that can put that kind of stuff into words, and, and I know because we see some of their work every year in our writing contest, but some of those things to capture that and then to come back and be able to convey that to people, that's part of the experience, that's part of what human spaceflight's about, is to come back and share those experiences, either through writing or doing things like this. And I think that's very important. And admittedly, I'm not the best at it, um, but the memories are gonna be with me forever and I'll keep trying, you know. Yes? Uh, what was harder, landing or launching? Well, um, landing the shuttle was actually a lot easier than landing on an aircraft carrier. I, I've done both. And landing on an aircraft carrier when it's pitching and rolling and the weather's bad and you're there by yourself, um, that's pretty challenging and it's dark. Um, landing the, the shuttle, there's a lot of pressure on you, I guess, um, personal pressure because literally the whole world's watching. We, we were streaming our HUD, our, we had a video that's looking out our front windscreen and it was streaming on you know, Fox News and other news, you know, real time. So you know everybody's watching what you're doing. The actual landing, we've practiced a thousand times, so you, once you landed, it's not that hard. Um, the takeoff, the launch, was an incredible sensation, but it's all automated. There's literally one switch to throw if everything works fine. Now, the simulator, nothing ever worked fine, so we were always throwing switches, but in, in reality, the actual launch, there was just one switch to throw. As soon as you cleared the tower and you started rolling, um, threw a switch, you made a couple radio calls, and then it was just all monitor, and hopefully everything was working okay. But So compared to those two, the landing was definitely, took more skill because yet was pilot controlled from about the time you're subsonic or you know from about 500 miles an hour, well actually it's more like 300 miles an hour down to about you know your landing speed. Yes? When you're in space what are you most afraid of? You know, I, honestly personally um, the, I wasn't afraid of anything other than screwing up my job you know I mean I think again it goes back to that that personal pressure you put on yourself to do, do whatever you're doing and do it well Again, you know there's a lot of people counting on you, a lot of people watching you. The assembly sequence for building the space station was very choreographed. You know, this had to happen. We had to retract a solar array so the next mission could go move it. And we had to, you know, reconnect these things and disconnect these things. And we had so many things that had to happen in such a sequence. And if they didn't, basically the construction of the space station would stop and we'd have to figure it out. So you don't want to be that guy that messed it up, you know with 16 other nations watching and several billions of dollars. So the thing I was, I guess, most concerned about, I don't know if afraid would be the right thing, but um, was doing my job correctly. And with the training, we're, we're given very, very good training. So I think all my crew, we were able to do that and we were very successful. We had some hiccups. Um, we had a solar array that didn't want to retract. So we had to actually add a fourth spacewalk that wasn't planned. We practiced hundreds of different contingencies or things that might go wrong and we didn't practice this one that actually went wrong so we had to really make up the procedures while we were up there and um, that that wasn't we weren't afraid of that but we were certainly working pretty hard because that was a challenge thrown at us yes Um, the question is, did I ever do a spacewalk myself? Um, no. As the pilot, typically they don't let you go outside these days. Now, back in the Apollo days they did, but these days everybody kind of has a role and 
with the things I had to do, um, I didn't do uh, enough training to be qualified to go out and do a spacewalk. I did some training, um, but I didn't do a spacewalk myself. I was the choreographer, basically, so I'd get the the uh, folks suited up. We had two guys and a, and a lady that ended up doing spacewalks on our flight. I'd get them suited up, and then I'd get them in the airlock, and then I'd get them outside, and then I'd talk them through all the procedures, and they'd be in different points on the space station or the shuttle and uh, perform their tasks, and my job was just to make sure they were doing the right thing in the right sequence because it, you know my checklist was a phone book size and they obviously didn't have that out there so I needed to make sure they were doing what they needed to so um, it was unfortunate but um, I was pretty happy with with the job I did also <clears throat> yes sir Uh, yes, I, I did. Actually, my first office was with uh, about half of that Columbia crew. Now, the, the Challenger, no, I didn't. That was back in 1988. I was actually graduating from college at that point. So I was watching that on TV down in Oregon. I remember where I was when that happened. The Columbia people, I knew, I knew all of them. Um, uh, one of them was in my class, the, the Israeli. He trained with us in my class. Um, and I officed, you know, with with several of those guys. And so I got to know them personally for a couple of years before they assembled as that STS-107 crew and then went off training and did their thing. All great, great people, you know. Yes? What? How do you, oh, that's a good question. Yeah, very carefully is, is it's actually, I spent some time um, after I got out of NASA working for a commercial space uh, outfit for a couple, well, for about a year, a couple years ago. And one of the things was they weren't building a, a toilet. And I knew from my experience that that's a very important thing to build in. You can't go back and retrofit a toilet, you know, and you can't just use a bucket. Um, for guys, it's pretty easy, you know, you use tubes and, and doesn't use water, it uses air, like like a, think of a vacuum and, well, peeing into a vacuum, I mean, that's kind of what it's like, but when you have to do the other thing, it becomes a little more challenging because you kind of have to strap yourself down or else you go floating away or other stuff goes floating away and then, <laughs> and then we couldn't flush the, you know, the, the paper that had to go in a separate container, um, it was very, Again, it's one of those things. You did, they had a trainer, a toilet trainer, and you and used it. But the actual, the actual job itself of doing that up in space, particularly your first couple times, was non-trivial, and it took time. And you know, your first day up there, you're already behind. You're already really rushing, and to take time out and try to use the bathroom, that was a hit in your timeline. So you had to pick that up pretty quick. And suffice to say that all these spacecraft are being built now, these commercial spacecraft, they got to give that design some, some due thought and maybe some creativity, you know, because there's different ways to, to do that. The Russians had a different toilet than the Americans. The, the space station toilet was a Russian toilet. We had a nice space shuttle toilet. And, oh, by the way, as a pilot, my job was to make sure that that thing functioned because if that thing didn't function and we had to go back to Apollo bags, which meant just, well, bags, um, Nobody would have liked that. So, um, just just how they operated, um, you know, they both used basic air as the mechanism to move stuff because um, water would just well water would float out. But um, just the, the the mechanics. I mean, think of like a turbine engine versus a reship. They both turn a prop, but they they kind of do it in a lot different way. You know, so it's kind of like the same. Same kind of thought. The, the end game's the same, but how they got there was different. Yes? Yeah, when we were landing the shuttle, uh, what kind of visual landing aids? There was something exactly like the meatball. Apparently, you're familiar with naval aviation. You were what? Oh, okay, yeah. So. The thing about, we had an optical landing system, but it was um, geometrically, like the, on the aircraft carrier, it's, um, it's gyroscopically stabilized, so it actually moves up and down um, 
based on some gyros and stuff. This was a fixed pole and a fixed set of lights. So when you're on a we in the end on degree and a half glide slope, that ball would be right in the middle of the datum, you know, the, the line. But what was different about it is exactly opposite of the aircraft carrier, meaning if you're high on the aircraft carrier, the ball's above the datum, whereas if you're high on, on the shuttle, the ball was below because of the way, and I could draw it out on a whiteboard, it'd make sense, but the visual was exactly different. So you had to get rid of that muscle memory that you've had for 100 or 200 carrier landings and reverse that so you'd do the, what you thought was the wrong thing to do, if that makes any sense. And then we also had just runway lights. You know, we ended up landing at Kennedy Space Center, 15,000 foot runway with runway lights, and, and it had <laughs> runway edge lights. And so it was very, it was a dusk landing, but it was almost like daytime. And one of the things we also had for the space shuttles, we sent uh, overseas, and as a pilot, I got to do this. We'd man up um, abort sites like in Morocco or Spain or France. And we'd have to fly those and make sure all the lights were set up properly as, as pilots. So that's one of the support things I did to help some of the other guys and girls fly at that point. Yes? Favorite meal? Oh, you know, um, I actually have a menu. Let's see if I can find it. Um, the favorite one, Rachel, can you, can you, uh, I'm not sure exactly where it's, where it's at in here. The, the, the whole food thing, and I, I did a presentation, I was in England a couple, a couple of years, can you find that, that next, um, there's two things on that thumb drive, this would be the other one. It would be, probably if you, maybe hit the back on that one. Yeah, it's, it's that one, yeah. Um, yeah, just, just quick. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, we'll just. It kind of sets up this presentation. Um, I, won't, I won't go into it, um, but one of the things that, that we do a lot of is eating. Um, it's very it's very social as, as you know eating and actually I don't know if this will this will keep cycling through or uh, can I can I stop it here maybe maybe if I can just maybe that does it um, yeah. did I just mess that up no I want this one right here that's that's good that's okay. Um, you get to you get to put together your menu when you're out there in training. And one one of your classes is they say come to this class hungry is what they say. And all they have is all the food all the food that's available on the space shuttle, and you get to sample all that food. And then you say okay, I want the I want the beef stew for you know for lunch on day two, along with the, the orange juice and the dehydrated vegetables and stuff. Um, I liked the beef. The, uh, there was some uh, shrimp cocktail that was very popular with most of the crew, but it was dehydrated, so you have to add water to it. Um, we had Kona coffee, which I liked a lot in the morning, the coffee. Um, it's a long way from Tang. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I had a, uh, an actual menu on here, but I guess I, I don't have it on this one. But um, I, I thought I had a menu on this particular presentation, but. Uh, the favorite one was whatever I was going to eat when I was hungry, really. And I actually also did a couple things. Um, I took some some chocolate. Just I asked for some Hershey chocolate bars. They bought me those big one-pound Hershey chocolate bars. So I became a very uh, very good friend to some of my crewmates, particularly the, the two ladies that were with us because they loved chocolate. And I also took a jar of peanut butter and some tortillas. And the way they made the peanut butter space compatible is they just put a piece of Velcro on the bottom so I could just stick it on the wall. And while you're walking by, you know, if you're, a lot of times you're so busy, you can't just sit and have a meal. And again, just like going to the restroom, eating a meal takes time to, to prepare it and cook it and make sure it doesn't float away. And when it does float away, clean up after yourself and all this kind of stuff. But the uh, piece of Velcro on the peanut butter, you could just stick it on a locker on the wall, walk by with a 
tortilla and grab a little snack while you're floating by and going doing your next task kind of thing. <clears throat> so food was a very social thing. We actually had a, um, one of the treats we had is on the space station. We had um, a dinner. We were able to all get together. Then uh, this was back in the back of the space station. At that time, there was uh, three space station crew members, a Russian, an American, and a German, and then us seven shuttle astronauts. So there was 10 of us around the table back there. That was very special. It's the only time we got to sit around all together and have a social meal together and talk about how things are going in a more friendly, relaxed atmosphere. Yes. The longest was this mission is just about 12 days. Um, next year, um, a guy named uh, Mark Kelly, or I'm sorry, his, his brother, uh, Mark is his, they're just twins. But his brother, Scott Kelly, is going up for a year on the space station. And he'll be the longest uh, US guy. There's been a Russian that was up for, I think, 400 and something days. So they still hold the longest one-time duration. But we're going to have our first US astronaut to stay up there for a year. And then that'll be in 2015. And then 2017, they're going to have another guy or girl, I think yet to be identified, going to do another year-long mission. And these are all setting us up to get ready to go. Right now, NASA wants to do an asteroid mission. But even, I think, beyond that, setting up an outpost on Mars and living on Mars. So these longer duration missions are setting us up to do that kind of stuff in the future. Yes? I'm sorry, what do I know about? Apollo 18, uh, it never happened. Um, oh, the movie. Oh, I didn't see the movie. I didn't even know uh, that existed. But I know Apollo 17 was the actual last mission. The rocket used for Apollo 18 was built, and it's there sitting sideways, either at Johnson or Kennedy Space Center. Um, but I don't know anything else about the, the movie. And I hadn't seen Gravity either, so I guess that makes me real. Is that, what's that? I, I hear it's a good movie, but I just hadn't seen it. I guess I kind of made my own. <laughs> yes? The question is, what if you get hurt or, or sick um, when you're in space? Well, what they did is they converted an old Navy fighter pilot to a crew medical officer. So I was actually a crew medical officer, which is um, it's probably not even as a level as EMT. It's kind of like a maybe like a wilderness first responder for those that have done any of that stuff. But it's basically a... You know, I can give IVs and, you know, catheters, and I can stabilize and stuff. But um, on the shuttle, we'd have crew medical officers, and I was one. Um, on the station, they do, they do more of an EMT level training, so somebody will get level that they're an EMT. And then occasionally, I mean, there's doctors that, that are astronauts. You know, we had one in my class. Um, so uh, some doctors actually do, like pilots, you know, they'll become astronauts also. And when we start talking about Mars missions and stuff, almost surely you're going to have a professional doctor, very similar to the way Antarctica does it on their South Pole station, where you have a kind of a doctor where you need it. Because with the space station, the shuttle, you have the opportunity, if somebody gets really sick or hurt, you can get them back down to Earth as long as you stabilize them. Um, the thing when you start going to Mars, you, you got to deal with it there. You can't get them. There's no quick return back to Earth. Even the moon's going to take a few days. Or a day, so yes. The uh, the question was, did I have a significant adjustment to gravity? Um, yes, actually, I did. Um, it was easier for me to adapt to zero gravity than it was to back to Earth for whatever reason. That's very uh, backwards. Most people have what they call space adaptive sickness, which is like just getting sick like on a ride or an airplane. It's very similar to being air sick. In fact, it's the same kind of mechanism. And we had half our crew was getting sick up there. And I was one of the things I did as a crew medical officer was give them shots of, uh, you know, Fendex, we, we called it, Fenergrin and some other things. Um, but me, personally, as long as you move slow, and you maintain what they call a 1G orientation, which is like, you know, there's lights on the top of the shuttle and there's like a floor, even though you can float in any orientation. Um, in training, you've always had kind of an up and down in the simulators, and you maintain that same orientation when you first get up into space and you move very slow and methodically. 
adapting to space is a lot easier than if you just try to do things fast or you start going head first down the ladder wells or whatever, or you know, doing spins through the tubes. There's time for all that stuff later, but for the, at the beginning, you wanna go slow and maintain that orientation. That helps, although it doesn't, people adapt in different ways. Coming back to Earth, typically people readapt very quickly on the shorter duration missions. The longer duration, you know, there's gonna be some muscle atrophy and some things that people have to deal with. And we actually had a, two guys on, that we brought back were carted off the space uh, shuttle. But they recovered within a day or so. But me, for whatever reason, I still had a little bit of, I wouldn't call it dizziness, but I wasn't gonna drive a car or fly an airplane for a couple of days, you know, until I got my, my bearings back. And, you know, in space, you get used to just kinda, if you need to go do something and I'm holding a can or something, I can just let go of it and it'll float and I'll come and punch in something and I can grab it. I did that one time when I got back to Earth <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't work. And I remember also when, when we landed and I'm unbuckling and I'm trying to get out because um, you know, I'm one of the last guys out. Everybody else is behind and below, so they're getting out. And I go to push myself up out of my seat and I don't move. So I still <laughs> must be buckled in and I wasn't buckled in. And this was only after two weeks. I significantly felt heavy and I kind of stumbled as I was getting out. And it, yeah, just me personally, it was harder to adapt back to earth than it was to space. That's the reverse of the typical. <clears throat> yes? What's the situation out the Russian space station? Depends on who you ask. Um, I was just down to Houston uh, about four weeks ago and I met some, some folks and they kind of were talking, I, I, I want to say candidly, but what they're saying and what you hear on the news is not, they don't mesh up. Like you know, so um, it's a little tense right now. It is one space station. It's connected by an internal node, um, but it's effectively two spacecraft. I mean, the Russian space, you know, they they run like 28 volts and we run 115 volts. We couldn't even get the electrics to be the same. So they are two spacecraft, but they have the boost capability. We have the power, electrical power generation capability. Although they have some of that. Um, I think you need both to really make the thing work, even though Russia says use a trampoline and we can do just fine. I, I think that they need us and we need them. That's how the ISS is built. And I think that's how it is. Now, the, NASA has been asked to not further any friendly discussions right now until they resolve all these other things. And I think that's kind of now waning the whole Ukraine thing. But the worker bees, have and they always have and it's been my experience I was over there a couple of times we always get along I get along with you know the cosmonauts fine and now the Taikonauts I'm getting ready to go to China for a Chinese hosted thing here in a couple months and and, and they're they're nice when you when you just let the worker bees work it's all fine it's when you get the management involved and I think that's typical anywhere or the politicians then things get kind of messed up but I saw friends in Russia and I you know and that working relationship is so friendly. The mission controls still work, cooperate, but the politicians and the management need to figure out what they want to do, you know, and hopefully just let us do our, our thing, you know. Yes? So how important is physics or, or I guess any, any science? I guess it really depends on what you want to do when you pursue your, your, your goals. To be a test pilot, for instance, my own experience, you had to have some sort of scientific or engineering kind of background. You couldn't, couldn't have been a, um, I don't know, an economics major and then went on to be a test pilot with the Navy or with the Air Force. There's two schools. I went to the Navy school. And that's because you need a you need a mathematic background. You need to know physics. You need to understand how airplanes fly. You know, contrary to what a pilot thinks, they don't make it fly. It's the physics of the airflow and Bernoulli and all that stuff. So you needed to understand that going into the school, so you can understand how to make that stuff work even better. So it was very important in, in my line of work. Now that being said, we had all sorts of astronauts from different backgrounds. There was a period of time where we took school teachers. In fact, one of my classmates, Barbara Morgan 
was a backup to Krista McAuliffe, who was on the Challenger. She ended up training with my class, and she ended up flying, I think, the flight or two after me, maybe two flights after me, she ended up flying, and now she's back in Idaho. She didn't have a technical background. She was a school teacher, and then we took some other school teachers, and the idea was they can, like I was mentioning, convey the experience of space flight better because they understand the students, so they can go up and be in space and convey that back to the students, inspire them to pursue careers that might lead them to whatever dreams or aspirations they have. So physics is important, science is important, particularly in my line of work, but it wasn't necessarily important for everybody. We had a veterinarian that was an astronaut, you know, so um, he probably had some science background being a doctor, but maybe not so much in physics. I enjoyed physics. I, I really liked it. I took modern physics, um, which I was on the cusp, but something clicked there when I was studying for the final. I was going to the final with a C, personal story. Something clicked, Heisenberg uncertainty principle, something. Went back, reread everything, crammed, ended up acing the, the final, brought it up to an A, and um, it just sometimes just takes that one little piece of data that you don't have to make sense, and then everything else falls into place. <clears throat> yes? Um, well, first of all, it was great. Uh, like I said, uh, I trained over in Russia on a couple different occasions, and you know we had liaisons over there. They had liaisons with us. There was a Russian and a German and a Swedish guy on board uh, when I flew. All space station crew members have to know both Russian and English. So I studied Russian for a little bit, um, but you have to be fluent in both to, to fly um, as a ISS crew member. Now I was a space shuttle crew member, so I didn't have to be fluent in Russian, but I learned enough to to know don't touch that or fire or, you know, whatever. Um, the Germans, my, well, my, my crewmate, Christopher saying he was a Swede. Uh, he, he trained in Russia. He was fluent in, in Russian. Um, he, would, he was fond of telling one of our trainers, her name was Christy, she, she trained us on our EVAs, on our spacewalks, when she would kind of harass him about his, his language or his accent, he would make sure she knew that he's been speaking English longer than she had because she was 30 and he was like 45. So, um, but he knew English, he knew, uh, he knew Russian as a Swedish, he also knew some other languages. Same with the German, they know English and Russian because he was a station crew member. So language training was very important. The new astronauts that just came in, that's one of the biggest things they're learning right now is, is language training. So they're going through Russian, they're, you know, speaking to the American astronauts. The Russians are very professional. This thing I'm going to in China, um, they, it's an annual thing. It's called Association of Space Explorers, and it's Russian, Chinese, Europeans. It's, it's everybody. We get together. The Russians are very professional. They're very good. They have a different philosophy on how they do things. They tend to make things simple but robust, and that goes for their airplanes and their spacecraft. We tend to make things complicated and expensive but versatile. Like, I mean, look at the space shuttle. You know, so um, it was fun working with them. They're they're a fun group. They're hard workers, um, and I consider a lot of my friends still to this day. And I look forward to seeing them. I only get to see them about once a year anymore. But um, the Germans, Tomas Ryder, we brought him back down from the space station. He's now head of the human space flight for European Space Agency. He's a very very nice guy. You know you go out and hang with him and you would never know that that's what his job was. He just seems like a normal guy. and um, Everybody has that passion for human spaceflight. And when you get a group of individuals together like that and they got that all that same passion, no matter what country they came from, they can share that and, and get along just fine. Yes? Well, the, the plan is there's two, there's basically two folds, and, and NASA is planning an asteroid recovery mission. So what they want to do is they want to go out, um, and I say NASA because I'm no longer a NASA guy, I'm, I'm, so I can speak of them as the third person, I guess. They want to go out and redirect an asteroid, I think it's about 33 feet and, you know, seven meters or so, redirect it to a, a, a moon, a lunar orbit, 
and then send people out there to take a sample of that and study an asteroid. And there's several different reasons they want to do that. That's their, kind of their primary thing. And then by the mid-2030s, so in another 20 years, they want to have people on Mars. It's kind of what NASA's doing. There's this whole brand new industry out there called the commercial space industry. And this is Boeing, this is SpaceX, if you've heard of them, Blue Origin, um, Virgin Galactic, all these people that are now going to send people into space, but they're going to do it for a profit. They're going to make money. It's a commercial operation. Very similar to what aviation was like back in the 19-teens when you had, you know, Alaska Airlines or, you know, all these uh, new wings and all these airlines back in the day that were starting to fly airplanes for commercial and making money flying people or cargo. That's where the commercial space industry is now. They want to start flying people. Right now we can't get U.S. astronauts up to the space station using any U.S. rocket because the space shuttle's retired. So we pay the Russians $71 million for a seat. Ten years ago it was $20 million. So they're pretty good capitalists now. They're charging us. It's the only game in town. So the commercial space industry is trying to make a capability like SpaceX and Boeing and Blue Origin, or the companies, try to make a capsule that can go up to the space station, ferry U.S. astronauts up to the space station. Um, that's you're talking about the heavy lift, the big rocket, the big NASA. They're still trying to develop big rockets. They call them the heavy lift vehicles because they still see that as a potential for the Mars missions 20 years down the road. So Boeing slash Lockheed, that United Launch Alliance, they're still working on that. I think NASA still has its own uh, project for a heavy lift rocket. They still got their Orion deal going. They kind of canceled it, but that seemed to never go away. They're kind of converting it to this asteroid capture mission, whereas the commercial industry is trying to access now first low Earth orbit, where the space station is. There's a market there. It's also some people are talking about building another space station, a commercial space station, and leasing out parts of that. And then they're talking about lunar um, things. And then if you ever read about Elon Musk and SpaceX, in his lifetime, he wants to be the guy to go to Mars. So, you know, he's 45, he's my age, so he's got about 20, 30 years which is doable. That guy's doing some pretty pretty good work down there. Do you think there's um, intelligence, the concept of other intelligence, and also the Earth seems to be getting less important in, through astronomers, um, these um, different concepts of, of, of parallel universes and other types of intelligence? Do so, do, yeah, do I think, <laughs> you know, well, there's a word for that, and I, the word slipped me, uh, you know, the, the paradox or something, thinking that there is intelligence out there, but there is, there's, they would have most certainly found us by now. Um, I, I believe there is something. It may not be intelligent, but it might be like us. It might be, not that we're not intelligent, but um, it might be that we can't really get out beyond our own solar system at the moment, you know, and I... I find it very hard to believe there's not something out there like a plan. Of, if you just look at life on Earth and where it survives in these volcanoes and underwater and stuff, life is just so versatile and, and so strong. I find it very hard to believe that there's, we're, the, we're the only game in town in the entire universe. The universe is huge. And, and even the solar system, you know, we're looking at some of these moons around some of these other big planets and stuff. So my personal gut feeling is there's something out there. It might not be the little... Martian with big eyes and a bald head, but it might be something, you know, and I think it's waiting to be explored. And that's the ultimate, I guess, motivation for space exploration, to see if we really are alone. I mean, that's really, you know, in the end, other than the sun's going to blow up in about four billion years, so we've got to figure something out between now and then. Um, then the other one was, do you think the U.S. is getting less significant as far as a globe? The Earth? Yeah. There's just a lot, there's a lot out there that people, lay people like myself, you hear these theories, like you think there's going to be a paradigm shift in thinking about the way the whole solar system works. You know, there there could be. Um, I I I think I think the desire to explore and get out is stronger than ever because I think we understand more. And at least to me, it's like wow. That ice moon now that's orbiting Saturn, that actually might have something life on it right here. I mean, we don't have to go to another star. And we find all these other planets now that are, you know, using today's technology not that close. But, you know, we're, if you look at technology and how we're making leaps and bounds, the more we 
discover and see, I think the more we want to get out there and more significant we become and, and the more that drive is. And yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think gives us the motivation as a race to get out there. So, I mean, we're just leaps and bounds. You can't open up the news anymore on a daily basis without some new discovery or advancement or, you know, the SpaceX rocket or the, the new planet they just found that's like Earth or, I mean, all these things. And who knows, there could be a big change in physics in the way we think of space science and space physics. Yeah, that, you know, now they're saying maybe we can travel near the speed of light. And before they're saying no, we can't even, there's no way. And now it's like, well, you know, they've said that 200 years ago about flying, you know, and it's, it's just amazing if you look past 200 years, what technology has done, just think about the next 200 years, you know, the next 20 years. Next 20 years, I think we're gonna see people on, on Mars. Next 10 years, I think we're gonna see maybe the Chinese would be my guess on the next people on the moon, but I think they're gonna be on the moon in, in 10 years, so. People are pushing the edges of that technology envelope. Do you think the I, yeah, I think as long as the political situation stays good, they're very nice people. I mean, I met them for the first time last year in Germany, and they were very, very nice. Um, at least, I mean, I, you know, I didn't power around with them all, but I mean, I think, again, we all have the same motivation, the same human space flight. Politically, they have an agenda, and so do we, and so do the Russians and the Europeans and all that, but um, some people think the next Mars mission is going to be like the ISS. It's going to be a conglomerate effort, you know, I know NASA kind of believes that to a certain extent, but then other people say, look at what's going on in the ISS right now with Russia and the U.S., and they can't get along, so we want to do it solo next time, like we did the Apollo thing, so it's hard to tell where that's going to go. Maybe the Chinese will be wanting be part of us, maybe not. I think some, politically some things have to change for that to happen, but um, it's not to say it can't. I mean, look at us 30 years ago, you would have said there's no way the Russians and the U.S. are going to collaborate on a space station during the Cold War, and now, you know, we're partners. Yes. That's a that's a tough question, you know, because that goes back to what is space, where does it end, and if it ends here, what's on the other side of that, you know, um, you know, in my mind, space is infinite. But for me to kind of describe that, yeah, then there's something, right? That's something. If there's another side, then that's something and you keep doing that forever and ever and ever, that's, that's kind of the paradox. And that gets back to, again to the physics. Does this kind of wrap around like a, you know, like a line can be infinite if it's a circle. You can go around and around that all the time and never get to the end, but it's, it's a finite thing. And maybe space is, is something similar. You know, it, if you just drew a line and kept going and going and going, where would it end? You know, is there a wall out there? If there's a wall, then there's gotta be something on the other side of the wall, you know, so. It's hard to put. It's hard for me to put my mind around that. And there's a lot of people that spend their whole lives trying to answer that one question. And I don't think nobody. I know nobody at this point knows the answer to it. People have theories. That's why they're theories because they think that they can't prove it. Yes. Is it hard to sleep in the shuttle? Um, for me, no. I, you know. Again, being a Navy guy, I was on an aircraft carrier. I had a jet blast deflector and chains and exhaust. On t I could sleep through anything, personally. I, I can. Um, that being said, everybody on my crew except for me took sleeping medication to help them sleep. I, I, could, I, was, I slept like a baby. And every morning we had um, wake-up music, and I, that's what woke me up every morning as Mission Control would wake us up. And typically a crew member each day would get a different song. So. I had a song that they played from my college days, and then I actually was at a hockey game a month prior to my flight in Houston, and one of the things I got to do was drive a Zamboni, so they played the Zamboni song for me and as a wake-up, which was kind of a big deal. And, um, but that woke me up every day, and when it was time to go to sleep, I, I slept fine. One, my, I do remember my best night, the night I didn't sleep well, but it was my best night, is me and my buddy Krister, who was a Swedish guy, we went to the space station to the Russian airlock, and they actually had a window there that was pointed in the exact direction that we were flying around the Earth. So it was basically a forward-looking window, um, and we slept, you know, I was like this, and he was like this, and we slept with our faces pasted on that window. The problem with that is you go around the Earth every 90 minutes, so you get 45 minutes of sun, 45 minutes of dark. So every 45 minutes, you get this flashlight and wake you up, 
And I said, oh, okay, that's because I'm looking out, but I'm not going to not look out because it's pretty cool. So you keep looking out, and it gets dark, and then so you kind of fall back to sleep for that 45 minutes, and then you get – so that for about six hours of doing that, I didn't sleep very well, but it was definitely a very, very cool night because in the space station – or in the space shuttle where I slept every other night, when we were docked, we weren't necessarily – although you had windows, we'd, shade, we'd put shades over them. We all slept in the mid-deck, which was the middle of the ship where there was no window, so it would be dark and quiet. We could actually get some sleep because we actually had work to do, so we actually had to get sleep. But that was a night on the space station where the next day we only had half, we had a half day off basically to catch up on some public relations stuff and we didn't have to work so hard. So we were able to not get so much sleep that night. Yes? I'm sorry, say that again? Um, the favorite part, that, that's, a, that's a long list. You know, the, um, I think, I think one of the things about my flight, which was a little different than other flights, was um, I trained with two of my crewmates, Beamer, um, Beamer, who's on second from that, uh, two guys on the, I guess, on the far side, Christopher and Beamer, trained for them for five years, became and star some of my, my best friends. So be able to go into space with not just your crew, but like some of your best friends was really, really cool. Um, not that the other guys, weren't good friends because we trained for a couple years together, but those guys were with me before the accident. And after the accident, we did a whole restructuring of a lot of the flights of which my flight was one. So we, we got rid of some people and brought in some new faces and stuff. But the three of us were kind of from that core group. So definitely one of my favorites was flying with my good friends, which I think is like anything. If you're with your good buddies and whatever you're doing, it's just gonna be a lot, a lot funner. I think. Um, yeah, I, I I did have some dreams. It was interesting. One of the things when you're in space, um, and they studied it. Krister, my Swedish crewmate, was this was an experiment. He was actually, he was a physicist, by the way, and and he was studying this phenomenon in space. But you get these every once in a while these flashes of light, and apparently they're high speed particles that, on Earth, the atmosphere stops, but up in space, they're tiny, very fast, but they. They penetrate through, and when they penetrate through your eyeball, it doesn't create damage, but it creates a flash of light. So every once in a while when you're sleeping, before you fall off but your eyes are closed, you get this little flash of light. And so they were studying that, and he was trying to study and quantify it and this and that, and never read his paper on it, but he was very interested in that phenomenon. As far as dreams, yeah, you, I, I, can't, I can't say I dreamt any weird dreams other than maybe a couple falling dreams because you're literally floating up there, you know, and... But you get used to that. You kind of get used to that sensation, and it's it's amazing. Every, every person will adapt eventually. The human body is incredibly adaptive. Some people just take longer than others, but after a while, you know, after a week, it's like I've been doing this all my life. You know, you sleep good, I eat good, and everybody's sleeping good. It's interesting when you go to the space station. You know, we were, took us three days to get to the space station, and by then you're starting to feel good around the shuttle and everything. Then you get in the space station, and now you got different angles and pipes and other things so it's like starting over again you know and then you got to get used to this new vehicle and get readapted to that and there were some interesting experiences there because we we had a lot of work to do and and I had a lot of things to do in the space station so it took me I had to quickly adapt there too just because the job required it yeah yeah it was um it was hard but again I was I was looking forward to coming back and sharing the experiences you know I mean I being the pilot, you know, it, the going up and the coming down is what I was trained to do. I mean, yeah, there's a mission to do up there, but, you know, six months would have probably started to drag on a little bit for, for me. I'm more the, yeah. So. Let's see, I think we're almost out of time. It's almost two. I, I'll answer a couple more questions, and, uh, and yes. Um. You know, some people think you need that gravity to help you swallow or whatever, but it, it's all the same. I mean, once you get it in your mouth, it, it kind of um, it kind of works just the same. And it's interesting. I don't know if they've been rolling through here, but we did some games with water where right there, where you'd have this water, and it looks like kind of a, a ball, and uh, you know, and you think you bite it and it tastes like a gumball. But as soon as you 
bite that ball out of the air. It's like you just took a sip of water. And it was kind of it's kind of weird. It wasn't a an experience mentally I was prepared for because you know you think taking a drink of water goes from one vessel to another, but if you're taking something out of the air, it's going to be solid when you put it in your mouth. And this was water that was solid in the air. So it's kind of a taking one experience translating it to another that you have on earth but in space it was kind of like one continuous experience of drinking water out of the air so that was probably the only food thing but as far as eating peanut butter eating all the other food once you get it in your mouth it's fine but if you ever go into space don't try to eat that gorp you know that that stuff that has a life of its own i took some of that stuff because i was a big gorp eater and i put it in these basically ziploc bags and i took seven bags up and I brought seven bags home because I tried to eat it and, and it just, it was going everywhere. As soon as you open that, these things are just floating and all this. And this guy, the guy that's with me there, he said, oh, I can show you how to do this. And I said, okay, I'm, he's either going to educate me or entertain me, one of the two. And he entertained me because after about <laughs> five minutes of trying to show me how to eat gorp, he just, he threw it, said, get this stuff away from me. And, you know, so eating was probably one of the funnest things we did, you know. It was social, and it was just kind of a fun thing to do. And, you know, I don't miss many meals even these days. All right, I, th I think my – what's that? Um, you know, I, I, have a, I have a movie. I probably, if I can find this movie real quick, I think I have uh, – well, there's that. Yeah, there's that menu. I don't know what what it's doing. Okay. Yeah, that that was a that was getting back to your question about some of the food. This is some of the stuff I ate. Yeah, my problem is I made this menu when I was 35. Now I'm 50, so I need glasses to read it. But yeah, so I mean, chicken fajitas, grilled pork chop, peaches, seafood gumbo was good. The yogurt wasn't so good. Sweet and sour pork. I mean, we ate pretty good, you know. No, I was going to take some smoked salmon because, you know, we, growing up, always fished a Kenai and we always would smoke it and stuff. But uh, we made it, we had a rule, fish, no fish on board because it was such an enclosed environment. And, you know, Sam, yeah, the smell. Um, we had to live together, too, so we all agreed that we wouldn't bring fish. So let me see if I can find, there, I have a movie of, of playing with, oh, okay, so playing with some water. But I need to get back to the slideshow. This is this is a uh, this is just an Excel menu. We also had a rule on uh, while she's while she's getting back. Um, you had food each day, so day one, day two, day three. If you didn't eat your day day two, like I couldn't touch your day two food on day two, but if you didn't eat your day two food and it's now day three, your food's fair game. So one thing you do beginning of the day is you'd see what was left over from the other people that they didn't eat their food, and then when we were all done. Um, we gave what, all of our good leftover food we gave to the people on the space station because their food supply is a lot harder to get up and down, whereas ours, you know, we, it's very easy on the shuttle. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe I didn't put it on there. Anyhow. Um, Could it be on the It won't be a movie on that. I'm thinking I might not have put it on there. Anyhow, sorry, I had a movie. I just didn't bring it with me. But, um, you know, the, the old putting a water ball in there. I, I put a water ball in there in, in space, and then I put a couple of these candies in there, and they were kind of floating around. I've seen people with that surface adhesion, getting back to the physics deal, they they had a little toy shuttle, and they put it on the, on the water ball floating around and gave it a little tap, and it actually sit there and spin around the outside of the water ball like it's orbiting, you know, and the surface tension of the water would, would hold it on there. Um, so yeah, there's there's some fun things, and we actually had a water bottle um, that was sealed off. You know, like just think of a water bottle here, but in space, you know, there's not a space on top and water, and you know, the water just floats up and down. So the the balls of air in there, the way they kind of move around, it's kind of interesting fluid dynamics program going on there. Yeah, science fiction. I did read science fiction. I did a lot of reading growing up, and I loved airplanes, and I loved space, but like I said, I never, I thought astronauts was something that somebody else did, you know, and 
and I think that's maybe a good a good way to end it is don't let anybody limit the things you can do you know and don't limit yourself if you if you can dream it you can do it thank you, thank you for your time <laughs>